This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. My name is Dustin Smith, and as always, I will be your host. I hope you're having an excellent and refreshing Thanksgiving holiday this week. This week we have episode 252 entitled The Messiah in Psalm 89. Yes, we are still going through the Hebrew Bible through the Old Testament in order to better understand how Jews and early Christians drew upon these passages in order to better understand the person of the Messiah, the role and the work of the Messiah, and of course the relationship of this promised Messiah with the God of Israel. In this week's episode, we'll look at the 89th Psalm and some questions I would like to raise in regard to this really interesting Psalm are as follows. First, in what ways does the 89th Psalm discuss the covenant between the Creator God and David, the Israelite king? Second, how does the Creator God empower and establish the human Davidic king, according to Psalm 89? And lastly, what can we infer about the identity of the Messiah based upon how the various New Testament authors drew upon the psalm, especially in its depiction of the heir to David's throne? Let's find out on this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Our first point today is looking at Psalm 89 closely. Now this is a long psalm, over 50 verses, and most of it we can skim through, but there is a lot of very interesting data, and arguably Psalm 89 is one of the most important psalms for shaping biblical theology, especially Old Testament theology, but also in setting up the New Testament for its primary message and messianic outlook. And hopefully you will come to agree with me after we look at Psalm 89. So let's begin. Verse 1. I will sing of the loving kindness of Yahweh forever. To all generations I will make known your faithfulness with my mouth. For I have said, loving kindness will be built up forever in the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. Selah. That's the first four verses. So right from the outset, we can see some very interesting points. We can see that this psalm is alluding to the Davidic covenant. This is one of the places where the Old Testament actually alludes to other places in the Old Testament. Psalm 89 has been heavily influenced by the theology in 2 Samuel 7, which is where the Davidic covenant is introduced. And so the Davidic covenant has two parties, Yahweh, the initiator of the covenant, and the human king, David. And the point of the covenant is that God has promised that David's heirs will possess a house, namely a dynasty, the 
geographically specific throne, which is located in Jerusalem, and a territory, a kingdom, forever. The house, the throne, and the kingdom will be established forever. So this is what God, the initiator of the covenant, makes with David, the human Israelite king. And so we can see here in verse 4 that God will establish David's seed forever. And it will be built up to all generations. David's seed, of course, indicates that David is going to have many descendants. David is going to have a son, and that son is going to have a son, and he's going to have a son, and on and on and on. So we can see here that this promise line involves members of David's family tree, his descendants. His heirs, of course, are going to be human, just like David was a human being. That much should be fairly obvious. We shouldn't have to say that, but you have to say it because there are some people that think that the son of David is actually the immortal God, and that doesn't work. Descendants of humans are also human. So David's seed is going to be established forever, and we can also see that David's rule is linked with his throne. His throne is the chair upon which a king is going to rule, and that throne was geographically located in Jerusalem, and as we can see, drawing upon the covenant made with David, that throne is going to last forever. And we're going to see that Luke draws upon this particular passage at the beginning of his gospel in Luke chapter 1. More on that later. Let's continue. Verse 5. The heavens will praise your wonders, O Yahweh, your faithfulness also in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies is comparable to Yahweh? Who among the sons of the mighty is like Yahweh? a God greatly feared in the council of the Holy Ones and awesome above all those who are around him. That's verses 5 through 7. So here we can see that they're trying to see if anyone can compare with Yahweh. And the location where this comparison is being drawn is in the skies. It's in the heavens. So the Holy Ones here are not human Holy Ones. They are angelic Holy Ones. The phrase Holy Ones is used in both senses in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. It could refer to angelic beings or it could refer to sanctified holy people that are human. And here it's quite clear. Those in the skies, the council of the holy ones, and they're also called the sons of the mighty, the sons of God. These are angelic beings. And the whole point is that who in the skies is comparable to Yahweh? Well, the answer is no one. So who is like Yahweh among the sons of the mighty, among the angelic beings? The answer, of course, is not a single one of them. So this is an argument against the pre-existence of Jesus, where people think that Jesus is an angel. They think that Jesus is one of these angelic holy ones in the sky, one of the sons of God, because the whole point here is that no one like the angels, is like Yahweh. In fact, this particular psalm is heavily favoring a different sort of Christology, a human Christology, to where the Messiah is the human descendant of David. But I just wanted to point that out. I thought that was very interesting. And highlighting the incompatible nature of 
Yahweh, this psalm also is going to show how Yahweh is able to empower and authorize and establish the human Davidic king. Verse 8, O Yahweh, God of hosts, who is like you? Almighty Yahweh, your faithfulness also surrounds you. You rule the swelling of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You yourself crushed Rahav like one who is slain. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. So we can see in these verses, particularly verses 9 and 10, that Yahweh is the ruler of the seas. And not just the seas, the seas, the waves, the rivers, any bodies of water, Yahweh has control over them. So Yahweh has control over nature, but particularly the water elements of nature, the bodies of water. And this reference to the bodies of water plays two different roles. It, of course, indicates that God, the creator of all things, is in control of all things, namely is in control of nature. But also we could see here that the bodies of water are used to personify the enemies of God. So when God rules over the seas and he stills the waves, this is set in parallel to the crushing of Rahav and the scattering of God's enemies. And quite frequently within the Psalms, the enemies of the psalmist are described in terms of chaotic bodies of water. And so that's going to be very interesting. We see here, of course, that Yahweh defeats his enemies, these enemies that are personified as chaotic bodies of water, and Yahweh does it with his mighty arm. And this is going to be very important. We need to note here that Yahweh is the one who has control over the seas and the waves and the rivers and the bodies of water, and that he stills them and has authority over them with his mighty arm. Keep that in the back of your mind for now. We will return to it very shortly. Verse 11. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all it contains, you have founded them. The north and the south, you have created them. Tabor and Hermon, shout for joy at your name. So verses 11 and 12 indicate that Yahweh is the sole creator. You founded them. You created them. As in, you are the one who founded them. You are the one who created them. He is the creator, and the creator, of course, is Yahweh. He is a single person. There's no indication here that the creator God is multiple persons, because God is the one who founded them, the one who created them. Moving on, verse 13. You have a strong arm. Your hand is mighty. Your right hand is exalted. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Loving kindness and truth go before you. How blessed are the people who know the joyful sound, O Yahweh. They walk in light of your countenance. In your name they rejoice all day, and by your righteousness they are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength, and by your favor our horn is exalted. For our shield belongs to Yahweh, and our king belongs to the Holy One of Israel. 
So here in verse 18, we can see that there's a shift back to the discussion of Yahweh and to the king. Our shield belongs to Yahweh and our king belongs to the Holy One of Israel. So the discussion here involves Yahweh and the king. Now for the verses right before that, it was talking about how great Yahweh is and how blessed he is and how righteousness and justice belong to him. His loving kindness and his truth personified go out before him. But now we're shifting back discussing how this great and marvelous creator God is going to involve himself with the king, with the Davidic king. Verse 19. Once you spoke in vision to your godly ones and said, I have given help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. So God has helped someone else. God has exalted one person from among the people. And we're going to see how, very shortly, God has exalted, empowered, and authorized this particular person, namely the Davidic king. Let's look at the next verse, verse 20. I have found David, my servant, with my holy oil, I have anointed him, with whom my hand will be established, my arm also will strengthen him. So it's quite clear that the person that is mighty, that God has helped, and the one from among the people that God has exalted and chosen is David. It is the human Israelite king. God has anointed him, and God's hand will establish this king, and God's arm is going to give strength to this king. David will be established, he will be empowered, he will be highly authorized. Let's move on. Verse 22. The enemy will not deceive him, nor the son of wickedness afflict him, but I shall crush his adversaries before him and strike those who hate him. My faithfulness and my loving kindness will be with him, and in my name his horn will be exalted. I shall also set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. Verses 22 through 25. And here is where we see God empowering this human Davidic king. Verse 25 says that Yahweh is going to set his hand on the sea. God is going to set the Davidic king's hand on the sea indicating a sense of authority and control over these chaotic waters. And the passage continue, says, his right hand on the rivers. So we saw earlier that God has authority over nature. God has authority over the bodies of water, the chaotic rivers and waves and storms and seas. And now God is going to share that authority with a human being, with the king with the descendant of David. God is going to set the Davidic king's hand over the sea. And thereby, the king is going to have authority over the chaotic waters. He's going to have authority over nature. He's going to be able to calm the storms and still the waves and walk on water. So every time in the New Testament where Jesus walks on the water, he calms the storm, or performs any sort of miracle natures, this is due to the empowerment from Yahweh rather than some sort of 
suggestion that secretly Jesus is Yahweh himself. See, a lot of people like to read these passages in the Gospels where Jesus calms the storm or walks on water, and they think, that's the sort of stuff that Yahweh does. So Jesus must be Yahweh. Well, that's a big jump in logic there. Yes, it's true that Yahweh does have control over the bodies of water. We saw that earlier in Psalm 89. But here in Psalm 89.25, God shares that authority and sets the hand of this human Davidic king over the rivers and the sea. So Jesus will have authority over the sea and the rivers and the storms and the ability to walk on water, not because he is Yahweh, but because Yahweh has authorized and empowered Jesus to do this. And this was something that was written hundreds of years before Jesus was even born. It was understood that the Davidic king, because of the Davidic covenant, would share in God's privileges and prerogatives in having authority over nature. Let's continue. Verse 26. He will cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. So the Davidic king will say that Yahweh is his father and Yahweh is his God. So Yahweh is the father of this Davidic descendant and Yahweh is David's God. There is no confusion here. There's no suggestion that the Davidic king is Yahweh or the Davidic king is the creator God. The Davidic king has a God, and that God is Yahweh, and that God is the Father. It indicates, of course, that Yahweh is the Father alone, and Yahweh is the God of Jesus. That much is very clear. Verse 27, I also shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. So we need to talk about this word firstborn, and we can spend hours and hours talking about the various applications to this passage, but I think the simplest way to talk about it is that firstborn, as a title, could mean two things. It could mean that someone is first in rank, and it could also mean firstborn as in firstborn in time. It could mean first in rank or first in time. So, for example, in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 8, God's wisdom is personified, and that personified wisdom is said to be God's firstborn, the first created thing. Because before all things are created, God made his wisdom, and then personifies that wisdom as a female figure, and so wisdom is described as God's firstborn. And that's how it was understood in early Judaism, and that's how it was understood by early Christians. That's not what is actually taking place here in Psalm 8927. Here, the firstborn, it's quite clear. It is the highest ranking king. The firstborn is the highest of the kings of all the earth. So God's king is going to be exalted to be first in rank. So again, the title firstborn could mean someone that is born first in time. It could also mean someone that is born first in rank. And arguably in the New Testament, there are some places to where it could mean both of them. It doesn't mean this or this, because it's quite possible that it could mean both of those things. But you have to look at each passage and make up your own mind. We'll look at one particular passage in the book of Hebrews to where it's quite clear that the definition of firstborn indicates the highest ranking king of all the earth. 
And that passage gets attributed, of course, to Jesus, the Messiah. Let's move on. Verse 28. My loving kindness I will keep with him forever, and my covenant shall be confirmed to him. So I will establish his descendants forever and his throne as the days of heaven. So here we have another link with the Davidic covenant. It is the human descendants of David that are to receive the benefits of these promises. And of course indicates that the ultimate heir of the Davidic covenant, the Messiah, is going to be a human being. He's going to be a descendant of David. You can also see how the promise of the Messiah is that the Messiah is going to last forever because the descendants, the seed of David, is going to be established forever. And that throne is going to last forever. But then the psalm goes on to talk about what's going to happen if these descendants get out of line. What happens when they are unfaithful to Yahweh? Verse 30, If his sons forsake my law and do not walk in my judgments, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not break off my loving kindness with him, nor deal falsely in my faithfulness. My covenant I will not violate, nor will I alter the utterance of my lips. Once I have sworn in my holiness, I will not lie to David. His descendants shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, and the witness in the sky is faithful, say law. So there's an assurance here that the Davidic dynasty is going to last forever. But there is an understanding that some of the Davidic descendants are going to sin, and they're going to be corrected, but the sinfulness of the sons of David is not going to break God's promise. He is the initiator of the covenant, and he has promised that the throne of David and the descendants, the dynasty, and the kingdom, those things are going to last forever, and God is going to see that through to the end. And that's how the psalm is going to continue. Verse 38. But you have cast off and rejected. You have been full of wrath against your anointed. You have spurned the covenant of your servant. You have profaned his crown in the dust. You have broken down all his walls. You have brought his strongholds to ruin. All who pass along the way plunder him. He has become a reproach to his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his adversaries. You have made all his enemies rejoice. So also turn back the edge of the sword and have not made him stand in battle. You have made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. You have shortened the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame, Selah. So this section is a recognition that the Davidic dynasty, currently speaking, is not doing so well. And they are looking forward to the restoration with a new Davidic king. And this, of course, indicates that Psalm 89 was not written by David. It was something that was written about David, about the Davidic covenant, but that Davidic covenant involves David's descendants, the sons of David, David's family tree. And this, of course, indicates that even though God is faithful, and God is the creator, and God is the initiator of the Davidic covenant, 
Some of the Davidic descendants have not been faithful. And it looks like the enemies are doing well. But the psalm is going to conclude with a reassurance that the Davidic covenant will ultimately be fulfilled. Verse 46. How long, O Yahweh, will you hide yourself forever? Will your wrath burn like fire? Remember what my span of life is. For what vanity you have created all the sons of men. What man can live and not see death? Can he deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Selah. Where are your former loving kindnesses, O Lord, which you swore to David in your faithfulness? Remember, O Lord, the reproach of your servants, how I bear in my bosom the reproach of all the many peoples, with which your enemies have reproached, O Yahweh, with which they have reproached the footsteps of your anointed. Blessed be Yahweh forever. Amen and amen. So the call of the psalmist here is that God would remember these promises made to David, which, of course, God has done and he will do. And it's the reassurance that even though at the time of the writing of Psalm 89, the Davidic dynasty is not doing so hot, there will be a full restoration. There will be the reestablishment of the descendants of David, and they're going to have the throne forever, and they're going to rule forever. This is why Jews and early Christians looked to this particular psalm to understand that it had messianic implications. And for early Christians, the Messiah was clearly Jesus. So we can talk about all the places in the Gospels to where Jesus shows authority over the waters. He walks on the water. He calms the waves. He calms the storm. He performs various nature miracles. That's clear. We've talked about that. But I wanted to look at three particular passages that seem to demonstrate the impact of Psalm 89, and they bear Psalm 89's influence. Let's move to our second point. Point number two, the use of Psalm 89 in the Gospel of Luke. So in the infancy narrative of the Gospel of Luke, we have the angel Gabriel appearing to Mary and telling Mary about Jesus, the son who is soon to be born. Luke chapter 1, verse 30. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Let's look at chapter 1, verses 30 through 33. It's quite clear here that Jesus is the person who is going to be the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. The Lord God is going to give Jesus the throne of his ancestor David, indicating that Jesus is the son of David. He's also the son of God. He will be called the son of the Most High, but also the son of David. He is a human descendant of David, and yet God ultimately is his father. Jesus will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will have no end. It seems quite clear that Luke 1 has been influenced by the Davidic covenant, but also very likely it has been impacted by Psalm 89. Move to our third point, the use of Psalm 89 in the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 1, the primary purpose is to indicate that Jesus is greater 
than the angels. This human Messiah, this anointed king, is greater than the angelic host. In order to make that particular point, a lot of passages from the Hebrew Bible are drawn upon. But it's not just explicit citations, there are also allusions. So in Hebrews 1, starting in verse 3, it says, When he, Jesus, had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much greater than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father, and again I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, And let all the angels of God worship him. That's Hebrews chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. It's there in verse 6 where we can see that Jesus is called the firstborn. And we saw the firstborn being used in Psalm 89. But particularly in Psalm 89, it's the use of firstborn that doesn't mean first in time. It means first in rank. It means the highest ranking king. And the author of Hebrews indicates that Jesus is the firstborn to where the angels of God are worshiping him meaning that Jesus is greater than the angels. He is the highest-ranking person, next to Yahweh, of course. And it's surrounded by all these passages indicating that Jesus is the Messianic Son of God. He is the Davidic King. He is the Son of God, according to Psalm 2.7, and he's the Son of God, according to 2 Samuel 7.14. So there's drawing upon the Davidic covenant in Hebrews 1.5, and there's a reference to Jesus being the firstborn, the highest-ranking king of all the earth. That, to me, demonstrates influence from Psalm 89. And let's look at our fourth and final point, the use of Psalm 89 in the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, we have these various seals that are on this particular scroll. The scroll was given by the Lord God to the Lamb so that the Lamb can open the scroll and reveal God's plans and purposes. So the lamb starts popping off all these seals on the scroll. And in Revelation 6, verse 9, it says, When the lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slaughtered because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? That's Revelation 6, verses 9 through 10. And it's this call here, the how long, O Lord, which was used at the end of Psalm 89. In Psalm 89, we saw that the call was, how long, O Lord, will you keep from fulfilling your promises? Things are not looking good. Our enemies have overtaken us. Our enemies are looking like they're in charge. And here, in Revelation, we can see that the enemies have slaughtered these preachers of the gospel, those who have maintained the word of God. They have maintained Jesus' gospel. It was their testimony. They had kept, they had maintained it, and they have been martyred. They have been slaughtered. And the call there is asking God, how long will you refrain from judging and avenging them? And this seems to, again, demonstrate impact from Psalm 89. Now, the reference to this, how long, O Lord, shows up in a variety of places within the Old Testament. 
than the Hebrew Bible, but I think it's quite clear here that Psalm 89 is one of the more impactful passages that have impacted at least this passage in Revelation 6, verses 9 through 10. So there you have it. That's the Messianic Psalm, Psalm 89, which is very important for understanding the Davidic covenant, the identity of David's promised descendant as a son of David, as a human descendant from David, who is distinct from Yahweh, but yet empowered by Yahweh to do things that Yahweh is supposed to do on his own. The human king is able to demonstrate nature miracles, walk on water, and calm the storms, not because he is Yahweh, but because he is empowered by Yahweh while being a member of the human race. And there you have it. That is the impact of Psalm 89 onto the New Testament. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. Join us next week as we look at the most important psalm that has impacted the New Testament Christology, and that is Psalm 110. Please look forward to our next episode. If you enjoy our podcast, please consider supporting us as we aim to promote the sound truths of the oneness and unity of God and the humanity of Jesus. You can support us for absolutely free by subscribing on YouTube and iTunes, by giving us an honest review on iTunes, and by sharing your favorite episodes with your friends. If you'd like to offer financial donation, you can check out the episode description for a PayPal link. The Biblical Unitarian Podcast is produced and edited by Dustin Williams. I am Dustin Smith, your host. Until next time, please take care and happy Thanksgiving.